Hi, and welcome to our first full episode of Our World War II Dad. I'm Chris Cangella, alongside my brother Ken Cangella, and we created this podcast to share stories of our father, Army Private First Class Louis Cangella, who served in World War II in Europe. You know, Ken, once again, you researched dad steps overseas. You recently got back from seeing some of those areas in France, Belgium, Germany, and, and Norway. Tell us a little bit more about that. So I've always had the desire to really follow in his footsteps and understand what it was like for him when he was an 18-year-old and in the Army. And so I had the opportunity, uh, after having done years of research at home, to go to Europe. And uh, I'm, I had some great people to, to kind of guide me along the way and did some great research before we left and was able to really see exactly where he was and understand the action that took place on those battlefields that he participated in in 1944 and 1945. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an incredible uh, journey that we take as well together on this podcast. You know, when we did our, our preview episode, we got some great responses and comments from, from a lot of different people. And it really got me excited to kick off this journey, you know, here today. Yeah, we not only heard, of course, from friends and family that uh, that had watched the preview episode and were, were excited about it, but people we didn't even know who shared their experiences with us and that went on similar journeys uh, regarding uh, their fathers, and it was really great to hear from them. Right. It, it's it's going to be so cool to hopefully continue that and that people will also, you know, tell us more about what they went through. So let's get started. You know, today we're going to be talking about what America's like near the beginning of the war and then dad's first steps in joining, you know, the cause overseas, right? That's right. We're going to uh, dig into really him leaving home for the first time at uh, age 18 and how he prepared himself to be uh, inserted into this conflict that uh, I'm sure he didn't even really fully understand, but he knew it was his duty to go overseas and, and do what was required of him. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough thing when you think about, of course, you and I are our fathers and we have young men <laughs> that are our children. And, and to imagine them going off to war is, is just a frightening thing. But, yeah. you know, we're going to we're going to learn a lot about what dad has uh, has done and, and his steps that he took. And we'll have a special guest a little later in the show. But before we get started. What do we what do we know about the start of the war in Europe, you know, and its expansion and, and eventually the U.S. entry in, uh, into World War II? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the end of World War One, uh, you know, Germany uh, lost that uh, that war and uh, the the repercussions for their economy and for them uh, in in, uh, in their country were very difficult. They had high inflation. A lot of people were disgruntled. And Hitler used that unrest to rise to power and really kind of rally the people behind him. And their conquests began to uh, take on more territory, which they felt was rightfully theirs. And they invaded uh, Poland and Czechoslovakia in September of 1939. And that's really what kind of kicked things off. Um, and then shortly after that, um, France and Britain declared war uh, against Germany because they had violated really uh, sovereign boundaries. And so Britain and France were committed. So uh, uh, Hitler and the Nazis just turned their full force uh, towards France 
And by uh, June of 1940, and uh, Italy had uh, joined with Germany by that time. By June of 1940, France had collapsed, and uh, Germany basically held on to uh, Western Europe at that point in time. Then uh, the U.S. was reluctant to get into another world war. Uh, there were still people that were unhappy about the experience from World War I. You lose a lot of people. And uh, so they're reluctant to join into this. It's none of our business. And then uh, Pearl Harbor happens on December 7th, 1941. And when that happens, the U.S. declares war on Japan. And since Japan was an ally of Germany, Germany immediately declares war on the U.S. And now we're, we're into it you know, 110%. And really, I think uh, uh, FDR, who was president at that time, was kind of happy that he had a good reason to get into the fight, because up until then, we'd just been supplying material uh, to, you know, to Great Britain. Yeah, it's an incredible timeline. And when I think about dad's experience during that timeline, if we place him during those things, you know, Hitler invades Czechoslovakia and Poland, dad's 14 years old, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And two years later, when the U.S. declares war on, on Japan after uh, after Pearl Harbor, Dad's 16. Can right. you tell us anything you've discovered about Dad during those years? Yeah, you know, there's, there's of course, not a lot to, uh, to know just from doing the research. But, um, you know, you got to imagine he's playing sports. He's, you know, just a kid in school doing what every kid does in school at that time. Um, he's young for his grade. Uh, when, when he's in his senior year, he's 17. I, I was 18 in the fall, and he was 17 when he graduated from high school. And I looked through his yearbook, and I found his picture. And if you read, you know, they have a little quote from him and stuff like that. You know, his quote basically was uh, that he was looking forward uh, to uh, going to uh, working and going to night school to continue to get a, a higher degree. And little did he know that wasn't the plan because he was going to be doing something entirely different that year after he graduated. Yeah, his his world was turned upside down as many men his same age just changed overnight. Everybody had hopes and dreams and yeah. things that they were going to do, and, and it completely changed. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like we need to learn more about what that time in America was like. You know, we need to talk to somebody who was actually alive and there during that incredible time in our U.S. history. Let's go to our mom. Well, joining us now is our World War II mom. Mom, I can't thank you enough for doing this. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And thank you for asking me to come. Mom, it's great to have you on here with us. Um, We got a lot of questions for you about the uh, good old days. So I hope you're ready for some good answers for us. I will do my very best. Now, Mom, you know, you didn't know Dad when he actually shipped off to uh, the war, right? I was 10 years old and in fifth grade when your dad went into the service. So I didn't know him at all. What was it like, um, you know, before the war started? I mean, did you feel like something possibly bad was brewing? I know you're a young girl. No, there was no indication in my life. I didn't hear my parents talking about it or anything. Of course, we didn't have TV and all that sort of stuff. But I wasn't aware that anything was happening. Mom, how did you first learn about the um, atrocities that started in Hawaii with Pearl Harbor? My sister Doris and her boyfriend then had gone to the movies. 
when they came out, they were selling extra papers. And it said that we were at war. And when they came home, they told us all about it. Of course, we knew then that her boyfriend, Dick, was going to be going into the service. And that's how I found out about it. Now, Mom, you you're, I'm sorry, Ken. No, you're, I just got, you're I just got some, a quick follow up. Good. Sorry. And so, so that's all right. Um, so uh, how soon did Dick go into the service? Do you remember? And, and where was he stationed? It was very soon afterwards, but I don't remember the dates or anything. But he went into boot camp and he was gone for six weeks. And my sister Doris went to mass every morning and hopefully that he would be in the right place at the right time. Well, they sent him to Africa. And from Africa, they sent him to Italy. And the boy never got home for three years. Mm. My sister wrote to him every single day. You know, Mom, you're from uh, a pretty large family like <laughs> Dad is, too. Did any of your brothers have to serve or anything? My oldest brother was 17 years older than I was. And he was married and had a child. So he didn't go into the service. But he went and worked at what they called then mine safety. So he was working on war products. What he did then, being just 10 years old, I didn't pay much attention to it. My other brother had a terrible, terrible, serious case of eczema. And they wouldn't take him into the service. But then years later, after he was married, and that was all cleared up, they took him into the Korean War. So that was your your brother, Phil, right? That's right. Yes. And, and how much older is Phil than you? About four and a half years. Okay. So, Mom, you guys learned about, you know, the start of the war pretty much from, from the extra and the newspapers that, that they brought home. What about during the war? How were you getting the information? Nowadays, you know, we look at our social media. We look at television. How are you getting information on what was going on? Well, we had two papers that were de delivered, one in the morning and one in the evening. We kept up with the news that way. And then we had a big Stromberg Carlson manufactured radio that sat in our living room. And of course, our father had controls of that, just like the TVs of today. And we would sit around the radio and listen to the news that way. Mom, do you remember who was broadcasting back in those days or or, you know, what sta what stations did you listen to? Was it like ABC radio or do you remember the the way they addressed it? I don't remember that. I don't remember any of those. OK. Yeah. Didn't pay any attention to them. Yeah. Now, of course, we all know that Americans were asked to do what they could, the ones at home, to support the war effort. Did you know what you guys do or what do you have to do without? Do you remember any of those things? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, butter and sugar were scarce. And uh, I remember the story my sister told that she went to the market to buy some pork chops. And she said to the butcher, I would like four nice pork chops. And he said, lady, so would I. <laughs> you couldn't get them. And uh, we had to do without quite a bit. But fortunately, we had an uncle. And I don't know where he got these things. But he got canned goods for us. And so he would give those to my dad. So we had a little extra. And that was kind of nice. Okay, Mom, and, the, Mom, the statute of limitations is up. You can name the uncle and you can say it was the black market. 
It was Uncle Moody and it was the black market. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stuff was on the black market? You know, what is, could you get pretty much anything? You know, you know, chocolate and all that kind of stuff was scarce, right? Oh, absolutely. But uh, my dad was a produce broker, just like your father was. And he told me about another man down in the produce yards there. And he sold produce right from his store. And if somebody came to him and said, I want to buy some bananas, he would say, fine, but you have to buy 10 sacks of potatoes, too. Mm. So that's how he made big money. My father would never do that. Mm. Yeah. But that was the black market. People yeah. took advantage of people. Mm-hmm. Mom, were there uh, were there other things going on to help support the war? You know, like like, like you know, tire drives or things like that. I don't remember that. I just know you prayed that your tires didn't need to be replaced, and there was a shortage of gas. My father had they had A, B, and C tickets that you would put on your car stickers. And he had a C ticket, which gave him more gas than most because he couldn't get to work. He worked odd hours and he couldn't use the public transportation. So we had a little bit more gas, but we still had to be very careful how we used it. Now, I kind of go ahead. ahead. I'm just going to say, so he he would go into work really early in the morning and the streetcar wasn't running at that point in time. That's right. So yeah. I've heard the stories, I think, in the past that you guys would save bacon grease. What was that oh, about? Oh, yeah. Oh, any time that mom was rendering any kind of meat that had fat on it, <clears throat> she would strain it into an old Crisco can, and we would save it and save it until it was full. Then I would take it to the butcher, and he would give me money for that grease. And I think, Kenny, you know what they use that grease for? Yeah, I had to look it up, and they actually took that grease and would use it in uh, some fashion to make glycerin that was ultimately put into explosives. So that's what we did. I know you're a good cook, Mom, so you weren't poisoning anybody, you know, get rid of it that way, but you might have taken care of some Germans because of the grease that you supplied. That's right. (laughs) Good work there. Let me ask you another question, Mom. You know, a lot of uh, Americans would reach out to servicemen, you know, really make sure that they're sending them care packages and and making sure that they're known that they're loved at home and that kind of stuff. Did your family take part in that at all? Well, my sister Doris did. And she would make cookies, she would make brownies, and my dad would package them up so carefully and send them off to her boyfriend, Dick. Well, this one time she used my mother's mixer. And the next day, my mother went to use the mixer and a metal nut was missing from the mixer. My sister immediately wrote to Dick, and fortunately he got the letter before he got the brownies. So when the brownies came, he and his buddies took their little fingers and sifted through all the brownies until they found the metal nut, and he was in Italy at the time, and he mailed it back from Italy. So at least you can keep that uh, mixer working, you know, even if it's all the way to Italy and back. Yes. Um, and and quite a few nuts obviously came from Italy since that's where our ancestry is from. There you, there you go. go. <laughs> there you go. It's Comedy Central right here. Uh, let me ask you guys, um, Mom, specifically, you know, what is what is your most scary memory of that time? When were you the most scared as a little girl during World War II? Well, I was in grade school at the time. I went to St. Bernard's Catholic School and it was right next door to the church. 
and we would have drills and the alarm would sound and the nuns would take us over to the basement of the church. And there were rooms down there. What they ever used them for, I don't know. But we would, all the children would sit in the, on the floor in those rooms and we would say the rosary until the all clear sounded. And that was kind of frightening because you were upset about what was going to happen to you. You know, in retrospective, I'm sorry, in retrospective, we never, you know, we know now that we weren't really threatened here in the United States during this war. But back then, you don't know the capabilities of the Germans or the Japanese or whoever, that that would be a real scary thing, right? Well, they hit Hawaii, didn't they? Yeah, I guess so. I'm just thinking of the continental United States and yes. you know, you're scared anywhere. What were you going to say, Ken? Well, just to follow up on that point, uh, the Japanese apparently did get one type of bombing onto the coast of California. And I don't know the exact story about it. So they actually did reach the continental United wow. States. So it, it, it you know, wasn't that far fetched. Um, it would have been a lot harder for the Germans, I think. But um, in that same light, Mom, did you guys have to black out the windows and things like that? Well, when the alarms sound, we would go down to our basement and we would have to sit it out there. And we just didn't put any lights on. Now, some of my neighbors, they just blacked out everything. They were very frightened. And we would just stay in the basement till the all clear sounded. And then we would come back upstairs. But, you know, you were talking about getting close to the United States. Uh, your dad and I had gone on vacation. And I believe we were in... Massachusetts, I believe it was. And we went out on a tour boat and the guide said, guide said to us, this is where they found a German submarine years after the war. Mm. So they came very close. How far do you think you're off the coast there for that U-boat sighting, Mom? What do you think? Maybe a couple football fields or a couple miles oh, or what? Yes, that's about it. They, wow. they could have, I don't know what they would have used, whether he had torpedoes or what, I don't know. That's, but that's, that's right. Story. I guess we don't really remember it, you know. No. Being a young man like I am, you know, I yeah, I thought we were safe here, but I guess not, right? Never. Yeah, don't take it for granted. Yeah. Can happen anytime. So tell me about the, the <clears throat> sirens. I didn't know about that. So you would hear some kind of warning system to know when to go oh, to the yeah. basement? So oh, like yes. they would use like tornado sirens or something? They Well, it was like... We had a fire station, oh, maybe six blocks away from our house. And it was the city hall and the fire station all together. And when there was a fire, they would make a certain sound. And we could, like they'd go beep, 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 beep. And we would count those. And then we could tell where the fire was. By We had a schedule. And it would tell us, these many beeps means it's on this street. So we knew where the fire was. When the war came, then they just blasted the sirens, and then we knew what it was. So um, did you know many servicemen um, in the neighborhood, you know, families and that kind of stuff, boys that went well, away? my cousins, I had a lot of cousins. And as they went into the service, my dad held a party for each one of them and gave them a savings bond and uh, sent them off that way. And your father had a lot of friends and some went to the Navy, some went to the Marines, some went to the Army and a big group of guys. And they all came home in wow. one piece 
except one. His name was Tubby. I never knew him. And after he passed, then the boys all took up a collection and they bought a beautiful golden chalice with his name engraved on it and gave it to Sacred Heart Church. And they used it at communion time. Hmm. And Sacred Heart was the church in East Liberty uh, yes. area of Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's where your dad, he went to grade school there, and then he went to Central High School for high school, mm -hmm. and then he went to Duquesne University for college. So how far was your neighborhood from dad's neighborhood? Where were you at again? Oh, it was, it was about 10 miles or so. And that's yeah. Dormont, is that right? Yes, I lived in Dormont, he lived in East Liberty, yes. How did you guys meet? I know there's an age difference, but how did you guys meet? Well, I went to work for my father, who was a produce broker down at the produce yards and they had an auction and I would work the auction with my dad and your dad worked for my dad's competitor who was still my dad's best friend, Jerry Schwab. And so he worked for him doing the same kind of work I was. Now your dad was an accountant, of course I was not. And uh, so that's how I met your dad. And then we started dating. We dated for two years and then got married. That's crazy. So he was an accountant and you were just a looker, right? That's right. Yeah. That, that works for me. Mom, who, who approached whom? Um, well, see, we had to go into an office after we wrote up these tickets and they had to get a, them approved. Well, the young man that got approved them had a crush on me. So he would take care of me first. And that used to make your father mad. And then I would take the tickets down to the produce floor and my brothers who worked for my dad could get the produce out faster. So I, I used the feminine technique to get things done. <laughs> the looker once again. Yeah. What do you remember about uh, victory in Europe, victory in the war? What do you remember about the that happening and the, and the boys coming home? Boy, that was wonderful. As I said, my brother-in-law, Dick, was in for three years when he called Doris and said, I'm on my way home, but we didn't know exactly when he was going to be home. And uh, so she waited and waited and waited for another call and she had to run an errand. So she did. And when she came back, we were all hustling around in the family room and getting ready to go somewhere. She said, where you are? Go on. We're going down to the train station, pick up Dick. Wow. So we went and picked up his mother. And my dad said to my sister, you let his mother hug and kiss him first, which she did. So they dated for, oh, I don't know, a year, year and a half, and then they got married. So you can appreciate that being a mother of eight kids that you would probably yeah. want to hug your son before any of our That's right. do. Yeah. I get it. Uh, yeah. So well, it was nice. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just impressed with your memory, Mom, and always have been. Um, tell people how old you are right now. I'm 91. I'll and be 92 in, in November. And yeah. Ken and I hope we get your genes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, hold on to my genes for a while. All right. You may still need to wear them, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Mom, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I know Kenny feels the same way. It was my pleasure. Of course, I love seeing my boys anyway. Yeah, it, it really helps us fill in some gaps. And uh, you've always had a, a really good memory and really good stories about the old days. And it's amazing what what you've seen change, you know, over the years from going from a little girl that 
just, you know, listened to the radio or heard their parents read out of the newspaper about an event like that, all the way up to the technology we're using right now. Absolutely. Yes. It was an interesting time, that's for sure. And how people reacted and everybody wanted to do their part for the war. I remember buying uh, stamps and you save them in a book and then you would buy get a bond when you filled that up. And everybody was doing that. We all wanted it to end such yeah. a way. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, mom, thank you so much for doing this. You know, I hope that you'll be willing to come back on with us because you, you know me, I, I'll get it wrong from time to time and we need your help in uh, getting more clarification. I'd be glad to help anytime, Christopher. Thanks, Ma. Thanks, Mom. You've been great doing this for us, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime. Okay. Love you guys. Take care. Love, love you too. Man, Mom was incredible on that segment. She did such a good job, and she's such a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, at, at 91, so sharp still, to be able to recollect those stories and uh she doesn't she doesn't miss a beat no man she really doesn't you know what amazes me you know being in this business a little bit she knows all this information but she has this knack for presenting it 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 cracked me up internally (laughs) because i asked her a question she answered that question and then she tossed to you (laughs) to give your opinion on it it's like she's part of a round table discussion group yeah. That's uh, that's on the news. She's great. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's not much that lady can't do, you know? No, it's absolutely amazing. I, I, I forget, you know, that she is that age because she is so sharp and so with it and so physically fit. I, I really envy her. Yeah, she's she's great. So let's yeah. get back into the start of dad's journey. Right. So what do you know yeah. about him joining up? So, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, he he was in uh, high school and graduated when he was 17. Um, And so I imagine, I don't know, they probably graduated in May or June of 1943. And I looked at his records that I have on file that I was able to to get my hands on. Some of it he kept, some of it I wrote for and was able to get from uh, from the the army or wherever they keep that stuff. And uh, found out that uh, he enlisted Uh, By November of 1943, he was an enlisted man in the Army. And I thought, wow, he didn't waste any time because his birthday is October 28th. And by November 15th, he's enlisted. That's one month after turning 18, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's That's incredible. You know, I heard a story growing up. I don't know if it's true or not. I want to believe it because I've shared the story over and over again. I don't want to be, you know, thought of as somebody who's not speaking the truth here, but... I heard dad had three buddies, right? And they go to the enlistment center. And at those days, I guess they enlisted all branches of the service at one place, right? For the war. Right. So dad and his friends decided that they wanted to maybe go in the same branch. So they have a chance of seeing each other or sharing the same kind of, you know, stories or or whatever. Yeah. And they decide to go into the army. Let's all choose the army. We're all going to choose the army. So they went into the, uh, you know, enlistment center where everybody is there. And, uh, and they came out and they go, how'd it go? And one of dad's friends came out a Marine. <laughs> one of dad's friends came out in the Navy. One yeah. of dad's friends came out in the Air Force, which was part of the Army. And dad was the only one that stayed to the Army. So, yeah. you know, he's yeah. true to his word. We've, we've learned in mom's, uh, of course, you know, description and what we grew up with. He's an honest man. And if you say he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So he stuck yeah. to his guns on there. 
Yeah, you, you you wonder what happened to the other guys. I'm sure uh, the recruiting guys influenced them somehow and convinced them to join their branch of the service because there's always a you know a com uh, or a competition between the branches of service. So yeah, it's interesting that he ended up uh, doing what he said he was going to do, and uh, it worked out for him. He came back at least. Yeah, we're happy about that. So shortly after enlisting, I imagine the next step would be boot camp. What have you learned about boot camp? Yeah, so it's interesting digging through his papers. You can see that he enlisted on November 15th, and by December 6th, he had to report. And he first reports to Fort uh, George Meade in Maryland, and that's the induction center. So I'm sure that's where you you know you get the haircut, the physical, and all those things. So that's his first stop. And I was thinking about him, you know, just turning 18. And, you know, he didn't come from any money. His family was pretty poor, big family, um, lost his mom when I think he was 13 years old. He had yeah, lost his mom. Yeah. So um, he probably hadn't ventured out very far outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and here he is off to probably jumped on the train, ends up in uh, at Fort Meade in Maryland, goes through his physical. And then the paperwork shows that uh, they shipped him off to Camp Croft in South Carolina uh, for boot camp and basic training. Hey, I wonder if they shipped him off to, and maybe they had other reasons, but, you know, if, if they, do they do it where they like shift people off to areas that they might be going to? Like Southern, you know, South Carolina is more of a warmer climate. Could yeah. he have been gone to, you know, Italy or Africa or do they ever consider that? Have you ever seen any of that in the training? Yeah, that, you know, that's a that's a great question. I, you know, I don't know why they, they sent him there and it maybe it's just logistics that, you know, if you got East coast guys, you know, and I know Pittsburgh's not on the East coast, but it's an Eastern, yeah, for sure. um, it's an Eastern state. And so maybe they send people there. And then, you know, if you're on the other side of the Mississippi, you go to another place. I'm not sure why they used Camp Croft. And, and I don't think Camp Croft is even a functioning base any longer. I think it was maybe fairly temporary for World War II. Um, but but yeah, that's where he, he was. And I found it in his things, a photo, it, and it's kind of like a graduating class photo, I suppose. And it's the guys he trained with. And uh, that's so funny. You know, he, he circled in the photo and wrote me, which I thought was really kind of cute, which is what an 18 year old would do. Right. Yeah. You know, you're you're not you know, you're not a full man yet. You might think you are. You just went through basic. Um, but I thought it was kind of cute that he did that. And, and we still have that photo today of all those men. I think it's very easy. And I know I've done to think of these guys, these young men fighting this war as being so much more mature, so older and wiser yeah. than they really are. I mean, 18 year old, yeah. 19 year old kids. Yeah. They're yeah. stupid. I have had them in my life. Yeah. I've raised them. <laughs> You know, and I've so, been one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I definitely wasn't as sharp as yeah. this. So, so just to think about these guys, and you know, and I'm glad that we hide, you know, hold them to a high standard because they yeah. did so much for us. But yeah. yeah, we forget at times that they're just kids. They're just yeah. kids. What else did you learn yeah. about maybe the basic training stuff that he went through? Yeah, before I jump to that, I just want to kind of give a little sidebar on sure, that. Please. Speaking of, of age, so um, my brother-in-law Travis Martin, his dad was in the South Pacific and, and was a scout. And when his dad went in, I think his dad was in his late 20s or early 30s. And uh, all the younger guys would call him Gramps. And he, you know, he's a lot younger than we are now. Yeah, and they call sure. him Gramps. And he was the old man of the troops, you know, and, and they looked up to him. 
And uh, boy, there's a lot of stories there. If we had more time, I, I'd get Travis on and tell you all these South For Pacific sure. stories. But. So they called him Gramp and you just became a grandpa <laughs> yeah, this yeah. year. So yeah. that's what a real grandpa looks, right? Yeah, that's the, that's a real grandpa. The, the Trav's dad was, uh, he was an older man, but boy, he did some interesting things in the South Pacific and yeah. he came back. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder, do you know much about the the guys that needed more specialized training? Were they always older, like the guy, the pilots? I mean, they were young, 18, 19-year-old guys. Were they, were they the older guys, the 20s, the 30s guys? I think they were a little bit older. You know, I don't know that they were a lot older. I think that some of them were in college. You know, you had to have good math skills and things like that. So I, I don't know how they picked and, and chose those guys, but I do think they were just a, a little bit older. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. if you had any kind of flight training or anything, and who did back then, really? I mean, it wasn't unless you, were, unless you were a crop duster yeah, or something. You're a you farm know? boy and, and doing mm-hmm. that back on, on the on the farm, the family farm. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, I, we'll hopefully do some research and find out more about that. So let's yeah. get back to dad's journey. Yeah. He goes yeah. To, to basic, uh, not basic training, but he went to the camp to get checked yeah. in and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And then basic yeah. training starts. Yeah, so he's do- so he does basic training at uh, at uh, Camp Croft in South Carolina, and I and I think that lasted um, probably about six months, maybe five months, and so I'm sure it was pretty intense. And of course, he's an infantryman, so he's learning how to shoot the M1 Garand. But as I went through his his uh, uh, belongings that he left uh, behind after his death, uh, that he just kind of had in a cigar box and stuff like that, I came across some notes. And I start looking at him, and I can tell it's dad's handwriting. And at the top, it says Johnson LMG. And so I had to look that up, and it's a Johnson light machine gun. Hmm. And he and he had listed, you know, all of the parts to it. He probably had to dismantle it and know how to clean it and put it back together again. And he never, you know, he never mentioned in all those years that that he did anything other than carry a rifle. And uh, so I, I don't know where the, that Johnson light machine gun came in or, and I've never even heard of that weapon in, in World War II, really. You know, you hear no. the bar, the Browning automatic rifle, yeah. and of course, you know, the, the traditional machine gun, but a Johnson light machine gun, I'm not, I, I have to look into that and see what that was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just thought they just got M1s and that was pretty much it. And yeah. then I don't know if it was used in World War II, but the rifle that is the, uh, the JAR, J-A-R rifle, do you know what that stands for? I don't. Just no. another rifle. <laughs> J-A-R. And I, I couldn't believe it when I, they, that's what they called it. The jar is just another rifle. So okay. we'll have to Didn't see if that's used in World War II or in further. Right. Yeah, I did not. I did not know that. Yeah. What, else, and maybe, what, what other stuff did they get issued, you know, when um, they were getting ready to yeah, kick off? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was interesting. I, I got the chance when I was at Omaha Beach at the American Cemetery. There's a great museum there when I, when I did my European travels and they have a, a, a dummy kitted out entirely. They have a paratrooper for the Airborne Division, but then they have an infantryman, too. And so, of course, you know, I took pictures from all sides and it was great to see. But, um, you know, I, I would look at what that uh, what that uh, uh, mannequin was wearing and I would remember dad's stuff like that for instance the boots um that you know they were they were kind of a leather but it seemed like a suede leather almost which didn't seem right to me mm-hmm. and i remember dad brought his army boots home after the war and they were always kicking around in the house somewhere and i 
used to put them on to shovel snow in them and uh, they were not very waterproof. And now to this day, I think about him in the battle of the bulge where it was snowy in that December when he's in Malmody in Belgium. And uh, I'm like, man, these are the boots. I hope, you know, they did have overshoes. They finally issued to him, but a lot of that equipment didn't catch up to those guys in time because they got caught by surprise. So and their warm jacket or their warm coat was a wool jacket. Is that it? Is that, I know we'll look at it a little bit later behind you. Is that his, is that a dress jacket? That's not a that's, fighting jacket, right? No, that's a dress jacket. That's that's the uh, Eisenhower jacket that Got Dad it. had, and that's so that's part of the dress uniform. That it's in pristine condition still, too. Yeah. I can't wait to take yeah. a further look at that. But yeah. when he's out there fighting, they just had wool, right? Those the, their warmth was made from wool, not down and all that right. kind of stuff. No, they had wool pants, and I think their jackets were canvas. Um, which, you know, that stuff holds water too. So they didn't have the waterproof materials like, like we certainly did, you know, and they, I think they had oiled canvas, which was supposed to be somewhat waterproof, but yeah, looking at what, what they were kitted out with and, uh, and seeing everything, I'm sure he was issued all that equipment before he, uh, he shipped out. So let's talk a little bit about that. How long, you know, how long from basic training to when he's actually, you know, off to, to join the, you know, the, the other guys over there and get in. Yeah, so so if we think about he's uh, in December, he checks into to, uh, Fort George Meade and does the physical, and then he's off to Camp Croft, you know, figure by, you know, mid-December. So he's in Camp Croft from mid-December till about uh, mid-June, so that's your six months of training or so. And so he ships off on June 16th, 1944, and he sails out of, out of uh, New York, and he's heading over to England. Well, it, have you learned anything about how that trip went? Yeah, so he, I, I was able to research and find the ship he was on. Um, and uh, it's the uh, troop ship called the General William Mitchell is what he was on. And I found the statistics on it, and it could hold over 5,000 wow. passengers. So there's a lot of, a lot of troops on that ship. And so the way they would cross the Atlantic is they'd have, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15 or so troop ships. And then I think, you know, four to seven um, destroyers that would go with him. I'm not, and I'm not a military guy, so I don't know if it was destroyers or whatever, but it was something to protect the fleet as they crossed the Atlantic because the uh, German subs were out there hunting them down. So I remember uh, one of us asked dad, were you ever scared? And he said, you know, one time I was the most scared was when I was crossing the Atlantic to go to the war. We're like, what do you mean? You're in a, you know, a boat. Why are you scared? And he says, well, he goes, our ship had mechanical issues and could not keep up with the fleet. So we kept falling further and further behind. And he goes, they did leave one of the protective ships uh, with them, but it had to kind of zip back and forth between the rest of the convoy and then circle back to them. So there were times where they were left kind of all alone in the middle of the Atlantic. And he thought for sure they were going to get torpedoed. He was just scared to death. He'd never even make it to England. Just, you know, the fear, because they all knew about the U-boats beforehand, and they took down some British, you know, uh, vessels that were getting, you know, yeah. their servicemen places. Yeah. So they know that existed and just, you know, just be falling back more and more and, and not having the protection of the full convoy as yeah. well as those ships. It just had to be an extremely extremely scary you know oh absolutely and uh, you know yeah there was tons of torpedoing going on out there not even just troop ships but supply ships were shot down all the time too so it was dangerous to cross the atlantic and it took in those days it took about two weeks to cross 
That's incredible. So that takes yeah. us to a, his arrival in Europe, right? Um, mm-hmm. where, do you know where he went? Yeah, it's, uh, I didn't know this until just recently when I looked up the, the ship that he was on where they docked, and they actually docked in Liverpool, and they got there on June 16th, or no, they left on June 16th, they arrived on June 27th. I've seen some other information that says June 28th, but we're splitting hairs, so it took till June 27th for them to get to the UK or Great Britain, and uh, he got off the ship in Liverpool, and then I kind of lose track of him for a while. I don't know exactly what's happening to him in Liverpool, you know here's this 18 year old and i on his papers i looked it up he was he was five foot six and about 128 pounds when he was uh enlisted in the army so he's not a big guy you know and so here he is in england i can't imagine coming from pittsburgh you know it probably his eyes were wide open just riding the train to maryland you know and now he's crossed the sea and he's in a foreign country and his training continued in england as they prepared him for whatever assignment he would get And one of the things I found as I read through his paperwork is that while he was in England, um, he got the sharpshooter designation as a rifleman. And so I looked that up. And what that means is he scored 160 out of a possible 200 points when they shoot its targets from different positions over a a certain period of time. I think it's like 35 seconds or something. They have to fire and reload. So, yeah, he got the sharpshooter designation. It was a good shot. Yeah, well, and you probably don't remember this because you're 10 years younger. Yeah. Um, but when we were kids, did uh, did when we lived on Delaware, do you remember the incinerator in the backyard? For did sure. we still have For that? Sure. Yeah. 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 That in the so, clothesline that we run our heads into all the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So dad would take the old wooden matchsticks that had the sulfur on the top with the red below them, you know, the big kitchen matches. Sure. And he'd line them up on the incinerator and then we'd sit on the porch and, of course, He'd take the BB gun that he bought us for Christmas and he'd show us how he could shoot. Well, he was such a good aim. And I'm not lying. He could shoot that BB gun and just tick the top of that matchstick and light it on fire without just obliterating the matchstick. He'd just he'd tick him and catch him on fire. And that, that's just uh, st- has stuck with me all these years. That's crazy. I had no idea you got that designation as a, as a sharpshooter. Yeah. Sharpshooter, yeah. That is crazy. All right. So he arrives in Liverpool and I think. You know, we're going to have to pick it up there. You know, our next episode is Boots on the Ground for our World War II dad. A special thanks to our World War II mom, Patricia Cangella, for helping us out. Incredible stories from a remarkable person. And thanks to all of you for watching and listening to our World War II dad. Please remember to like and subscribe and turn on that notification bell so you don't miss an episode. And if you're just listening to the podcast, please leave us a five-star review. We would really appreciate it.